Thank you, Lewis. Lewis is a great friend of this congregation, and we're always so glad when he comes to um, the proper coast, the East Coast, <laughs> that he comes and uh, visits with us. Thank you, Lewis, for that. I do hope you know it was the blood. I invite you to find your Bible, if you will, and turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. You may know before we even get there in the Bible that Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. It is obviously then the, the longest psalm that we have in the Bible. So I want to call your attention this morning to the fact that the longest chapter, the longest psalm that we find in the Bible is a song in praise of the Word of God. So my text for the day is Psalm 119. I'll begin reading at verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is always with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. For your decrees are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn away from your ordinances, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word, the psalmist says, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. My friends, this is the word of God. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the riches of your word. We thank you for the wisdom that we find there. We thank you for the ways that we encounter you through your word. We thank you that through your word we can hear your voice speaking into our lives. God, we confess, and by your grace we repent that we have not always lived in submission to your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I have read that the average adult makes 35,000 decisions every day. 35,000 decisions, some of them are major decisions, some of them are minor decisions, but even some of the minor decisions in life can end up having major consequences. may seem like a minor decision, but you really do need to decide to stop at that red light. It may not seem like a major decision in your life, but the doctors in our congregation will tell you 
that if you choose bacon instead of oatmeal every morning for breakfast, there will be consequences to pay for that. Some decisions in life obviously are more important. The decision of a career path, the decision to choose a spouse if God calls us to marriage, the purchase of a home, the decision regarding how we decide what is human flourishing, the decision as to how we decide what is happiness. And then, of course, there's some of those big faith decisions. What is it that God requires of us? And then that greatest of all faith decisions, what will I do with Jesus Christ? We need to have good decision-making skills in life because we spend our life making decisions and the sum total of those decisions will become what we will know to be our life. So we need good decision-making tools. How do you decide? How do you know what you know? Well, we in the Christian community, we have been making decisions for a couple thousand years now. And we know that in the Christian community, decision-making is an art or a skill that, that we need to possess in order to live wisely in this world. So decision-making is really important. How do you make your decisions? your big ones and your minor ones. How do you make your decisions? What goes into the making of your decisions? In the Christian community, we call this the gift of discernment. And we discern our way through life because we make so many decisions every day. How do you make your decisions? Do you just fall by default into your decision? Do you think that by not making a decision, that you're not making a decision? How do you make your decision? What are the tools that you use to make your decisions in life? What are the tools that you use to create your worldview? During the month of August, we're going to be talking about back to the basics. We're going to be talking about Christian decision-making, which for us means discerning the will of God, hearing the voice of God. How do we make those decisions that honor God? How do we make the decisions that God would have us to make? And how do we make those decisions that will lead us closer toward human flourishing? We're not left, thank God, we're not left in ignorance to just meander our way through the darkness of this world. We have been given some tools so that we can make wise, good decisions. We in the Methodist tradition, we talk about what we sometimes call the Methodist quadrilateral, and you can call it the Methodist quadrilateral as long as you understand it's not an equilateral. We talk about those tools that we use to help us make decisions in life, all decisions in life as we discern our way through life, we talk about things such as reason, experience, tradition, and scripture. And we are on record, as if we need to be, but we are on record saying 
obviously, Scripture is the primary resource for making decisions. Those other tools come in behind the priority of Scripture. We use reason, experience, and tradition to help us understand Scripture, but Scripture is primary when it comes to living life today. Scripture is our primary source of authority for all of our decision makings. It's not Fox News, it's not MSNBC, it's not what you read in the High Point Enterprise, it's not what your grandparents told you, but in the Christian community, and we Methodists loudly proclaim it, Scripture is primary for all of our decision makings. So during the month of August, we're gonna be looking at reason, experience, tradition. So of course, we start today with a, looking, with a look at Scripture. When I was ordained into the United Methodist ministry, I took a vow. We take several vows when we're ordained as United Methodist clergy. I was asked the question before God in the annual conference, are you persuaded that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments contain all things necessary for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and are the unique and authoritative standards for the church's faith and life? And in case you don't know, there's only one right answer to that question if you're being ordained to the ministry. So we joyfully responded, I am persuaded by God's grace. So we take that vow that we acknowledge that the Bible contains all things necessary for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, but we don't stop there. We also say that we are persuaded that the scriptures are the unique and authoritative standard for the church's faith and life. And my friends, I, I hope you know that when I took that vow before God in the annual conference, my fingers were not crossed behind my back. So scriptures are our primary way of discerning our way through life. We can bring other tools to bear but those other tools are brought to bear just so that we can interpret Scripture more faithfully. Recently, there's been a lot of conversations among Methodists on the authority of Scripture and what it means to say that Scripture is authoritative. Now, I've had more than one person say to me, that's a, that's a loaded term or a loaded phrase, the authority of Scripture or Scripture as authoritative. Now, in this world, in this culture that is swamped by what philosophers and social science, scientists call a postmodern philosophy, in this world, when people say something like, that is a loaded term, what is often meant in this culture is, because it's a loaded term, nobody really knows what it means. Or because it's a loaded term, that means everybody can just make their own decision as to what it means. But as someone coming, I guess I'm a dinosaur, but as someone coming out of a classical tradition, I believe that when I say it's a loaded term, that doesn't mean that we can't understand the term, that, that it can be whatever people want it to mean. It means that we have to unpack the term and make sure that we define our terms. Now, if postmodernism is a new concept to you, um, well, one, you, you didn't spend four sessions with me 
doing adult vacation Bible school. But what postmodernism, this culture in which we find ourselves, as is termed by sociologists and social scientists and philosophers, postmodernism has a lot of characteristics. It's a rather recent way of doing Western civilization, but some of the main characteristics of postmodernism is that there is no such thing as objective truth. A postmodern will say there's no absolutes, but as soon as they say there's no absolutes, they just made an absolute statement. Postmoderns say there's no such thing as truth, but you can have your truth and I can have my truth. That's a postmodern way of thinking. And another characteristic of postmodern philosophy is this. We all know that language can be used to create worlds. We all know that language can be used to, to control people. So postmoderns take another step and they say, therefore, language really doesn't mean anything. The only thing language means is what it means to the person that's using it. There's no objective truth or falsehood regarding language. And that's why we do a lot of interesting things with language in our culture, in this postmodern culture. We, we do interesting things like instead of saying that is a lie, we say it's misinformation. That sounds much nicer. Instead of saying that is adultery, we say it is an affair. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear it called an affair, that sounds like something I need to put a tuxedo on and go have a good time at. Beware of how postmoderns around you use language. But in this culture in which we live, postmodern philosophy that engulfs this culture says there are no truths except your truth, my truth, and there really is no fact behind language. That's why when I have a phrase like the authority of Scripture, I can't just say, well, everybody has their own interpretation of that, so go home and go to bed and have a good night's sleep. Maybe we need to learn how to unpack what we're speaking of. Maybe we need to know how to make definition of the terms that we use. So when I proclaim, or I vowed, um, in June of 1986 at Lake June, Alaska, that I was persuaded that the Bible contains is the Word of God, contains all things necessary for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, and is the unique and authoritative standard for the church's faith and practice. I meant that by declaring it authoritative for me, it, it is to be the center of my life, it is to create my worldview, my confidence is there. I don't let the way the world around me is constructed to change the authority, the role of Scripture in my life. So because I see Scripture as authoritative, that means several things to me. Um, I offer these to you today. When I talk about Scripture being authoritative, that means it is important that we read it a certain way. We take it seriously enough to read it the way it was meant to be read. The Bible's made up of many different books. There's many different genres in the Bible. So if you're reading poetry, you need to read it one way. If you're reading 
historical recollection. You need to read it a different way. When I'm reading a gospel, I'm reading that differently from the way I'd read a poem. You know, in poetry, you read it a certain way. That's why when the, when the psalmist says that we are shadowed underneath the wings of God, we don't believe that God literally has wings. We know what the poem is saying to us. So we have to read the Bible seriously. We read it the way it's meant to be read. For me, that's part of saying it's authoritative as I take it seriously. When I think about reading the Bible, that means that because it's authoritative, I, I, I have to read it regularly. I have to immerse my life in it. If my worldview needs to be formed by the scripture more than by the culture around me, I've got to read it regularly. So that's why I think it's really important for all of us to set aside a special time each day to, to immerse ourselves in the word. And nothing against the upper room, but that's not enough scripture to be immersed in each day. We have to immerse ourselves in the Word so that we can take on the mind of Christ. We have to look at the whole counsel of God, not just at a few favorite passages. I hope that you've learned, like I have in life, people tend to make time for what they think is important. So we set aside time to immerse ourselves in Scripture because we need the wisdom that we find there. We need the person that we find there. Another thing, when I say Scripture's authoritative, that means I need to read it like Jesus read it. For Jesus, his Bible was what we call the Old Testament. And you can look at the Gospels and you can see how Jesus read his Bible. You can look at the life of Jesus and see that he was immersed in Scripture. He's quoting Scripture all over the place. When people ask him about marriage, he said, let's go back to Genesis 1 and 2. He's immersed in Scripture. And you can hear Jesus say things such as in the Sermon on the Mount, truly I say to you, Jesus said, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. An iota, that's the smallest stroke in the Hebrew alphabet, uh, dot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. He says, not one dot, not one iota will pass away from the law of God, the word of God, the precepts of God, the commandments of God, until they are all fulfilled. So we need to have that same sort of reverence for the word that Jesus had. That same sort of reverence for the word that the author of Psalm 119 had. Another thing that's important as we read scriptures, we have to learn to read scripture as Christians. We really do see a great deficiency here in Western civilization and in, in, in our postmodern era. Uh, let me illustrate what it means to read scripture as Christians. Occasionally, well, no, more than occasionally now, I hear people in our culture saying things like, well, you know, the Bible says you can't eat shrimp. Well, you know, the Bible says you can't wear clothes of mixed fabric. Well, you know, the Bible says that uh, you cannot touch pig skin or eat pork. Well, you know that the Bible says that you can stone a child who is disrespectful to their parents. And then usually when I hear people talking like that in this culture, the, the conclusion or the implications they're drawing is, therefore, 
Why do we pay any attention to it? Well, moderns being how we are, we tend to think everything we think is unique and original to us. But we in the Christian community, hundreds of years ago, we decided how it is we should read the Old Testament. We, um, for instance, in the Methodist tradition, we have the Articles of Faith in the Methodist Church. I commend them to you. Google it. Read the Articles of Faith in the Methodist Church. They go back to the Church of England. And there's an article in there about the authority of Scripture. There's an article in there about how we interpret the Old Testament. And what we say in our Articles of Faith is typical Protestantism. What we say in our Articles of Faith about the Old Testament is exactly what Paul taught us to say about the Old Testament. And it's this. Some of the Old Testament was fulfilled, has already been fulfilled in Christ. So what we say in our Protestant affirmations, if we'd read them, what we say in our Protestant affirmations is in Christ, the civil law of the Old Testament has been fulfilled. I'm glad we don't stone disrespectful children anymore. Those articles of faith also say that the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament have been fulfilled in Christ. You've noticed you've never seen me offer an animal on this altar. The ceremonial laws have been fulfilled in Christ. So, according to Paul, book of Galatians and elsewhere, according to the articles of faith of the Methodist Church, like all standard Protestant articles, what part of the Old Testament still stands? If the ceremonial law, if the civil law has faded away, what part still stands? You know the answer to that question. It's the moral law. That's why the Ten Commandments are still there. The moral law still stands. In Acts chapter 15, as the Christian community got going, uh, the church had to gather in conference there in Jerusalem and just make it very clear how Jewish we had to be to embrace this Jewish Messiah, Jesus. And it was decided we didn't have to keep ceremonial law. We didn't have to keep civil law. You don't have to keep kosher. You don't have to be circumcised. But there in Acts 15, just like Paul in Galatians, just like all the Protestant uh, affirmations, we, we do maintain the moral law of the Hebrew Bible such as the Ten Commandments. And there in Acts 15 you'll see that part of the moral law of the Hebrew Bible is what the Hebrew Bible teaches about human sexuality. Jesus accepted that. The church accepted that. It's there and it's clear in the New Testament. It has been clear throughout our history that that moral law stands. So yes, you can eat some shrimp, enjoy it. You can wear clothing and mixed fabric, enjoy it. Uh, you can touch pigskin, go play football if you like. But the moral law still stands. We've been clear about that for 2,000 years. That's why we do the Ten Commandments. Do you realize that in 1631, after we started allowing Bibles to be printed in English, for those of us who spoke English, there was a Bible printed in England. We now call it the Wicked, the Wicked Bible. There were just a few copies printed before the mistake was caught. It's called the Wicked Bible. And by the way, if you find one, you've got to... You've got a great financial resource on your hands. But in the Wicked Bible, the reason we call it the Wicked Bible is when the printer printed it and he printed the Ten Commandments, set the type for the printing of the Ten Commandments. In one of those commandments, he left out a really important 
three-letter word, he left out the word not. So that Bible says, thou shalt commit adultery. Well, some people were really excited. They thought they'd found the loophole. The moral law still stands. We have declared that throughout our history. So we have to learn how to read the Bible as Christians. We know what to do with the Old Testament. We've been discussing it for a couple thousand years now. Just in closing, to read, to read the Bible in an authoritative way means I have to read it humbly. I don't get to sit in judgment on it. It gets to sit in judgment on me. I have to read it humbly. Uh, you've probably heard that I'm rather fond of C.S. Lewis. I've learned a lot from C.S. Lewis. One of the things I learned from C.S. Lewis is we need to beware of what that Oxford scholar called chronological snobbery. That's that tendency that every age has had to always think that they're more enlightened and they're smarter than all the ages before them. Now, we may know some things better than our ancestors knew, but that doesn't mean we're smarter about everything. That's chronological snobbery when we do that to history. My grandparents were very, very simple people, but they were very wise in a lot of ways. So we need to read Scripture humbly, uh, not with our chronological snobbery, not with the desire for Scripture to sit and not with the desire for us to sit in judgment on Scripture, but a willingness to let Scripture sit in judgment on us. And we need to read Scripture prayerfully. You know, you can't just read Scripture and get information. That's why the book of James in the New Testament, that book that says um, faith without works is dead, the book of James in the New Testament says even the devil can quote, quote Scripture. So you can read the Bible just for information, but we have to read it prayerfully because we don't want just information. We want transformation. We don't read to get facts. We, get it, we read it to have our lives changed by the authority of Scripture. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the great princes of the pulpit in the 19th century there in London, was fond of saying to people, there is dust enough on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. John R. W. Stodd, another prince of the pulpit in 20th century London, uh, said in perhaps in a little bit more modern way, he said, we must allow the Word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. Someone said rather famously one time that a, a mist in the pulpit creates a fog in the pew. That's been an issue for the last couple of generations in Western Christendom. We need to be clearer than we are about what is the authority and who is the authority in our lives. We, we appreciate reason, tradition, and experience but that has to bow to Scripture. Most Christians know John 3.16, and I'm glad they know John 3.16 because that will grant them eternal life if they know and receive John 3.16. But I commend 2 Timothy 3.16 to you. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God 
The word there in the Greek is one word. The word there in the Greek literally means all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in right living. So I commend 2 Timothy 3.16 to you. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for all the tools that you've given us. We thank you for the power of the human intellect. We thank you for the ability to discover truth through reason. We thank you for the great tradition of our fathers and our mothers in the faith. And while we're grateful for all these things, our eternal gratitude will be always for your word. May your word always be a lamp unto our feet for that next step that we have to take. And may your word be a light unto our path as we follow that path throughout life. May we allow your word to become as sweet as honey to our lips. But may we also allow it to be sharper than a two-edged sword to pierce our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray.